This podcast is brought to you by the loach minnow. Named after loaches and minnows, you might think this species has an identity crisis. Sadly, not many of them are left to have that crisis due to being an endangered species. Cheers to you, loach minnow. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of Getting Fishy With It. I'm Josh. I'm Amber. And I'm Christine. Today, we are going to be talking about zebrafish facility management. Uh, we have a fantastic guest today, and we're so excited and so pleased to have him. Our first ever guest on this podcast, and we managed to net a superstar mentor. That's- amazing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thanks. I wasn't even trying for that. Just happened. <laughs> yeah. So our guest today is someone who is a amazing mentor and a wealth of knowledge in all things zebrafish. Uh, someone that a lot of us look up to, myself included. Uh, his name is Chris Lawrence. Chris, do you want to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about yourself? Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for that warm introduction. As uh, Christine said, I'm Chris Lawrence. I have worked with zebrafish for a long time, uh, mostly at Boston Children's, but at other places um, over the last 20 years. And so I've been around for quite a long time, and um, hopefully I've learned a few things along the way, and hopefully can shed some light insight on aspects of fish facility management. Super fun. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. We're super thrilled to have you. Thank you. First thing, I just wanted to see if you guys had anything new, anything you want to share, Josh, anything going on? I kind of think I feel like every time we get to Monday, I'm like, no, I didn't do anything. But I mean, I, I, what I did do this past weekend was all this is all personal fun stuff. I we went uh, I went with some of my friends to a cabin in the woods for Uh-oh. what we co- coined Cinco de Broyo. Oh, no, <laughs> it was not my choice of the name, but that was what we went with. And so it was a nice time. Uh, playing Settlers of Catan and random other things uh, in the cabin and going on some hikes. So it was a good time. I It was really relaxing. <laughs> and I had today off. So Nice. Yeah. How about you, Amber? Just working a lot and yeah. still doing school. Yeah. Reviewing uh, protocols is like, it's, it's ridiculous. Just seeing like what everybody is doing and like what animals that they're using for their research studies. It's really cool to see honestly, kind of like the behind the scenes of everything, um, especially coming like from an animal care tech background. So yeah, just like focusing on that and trying to get better at my position. Um, one fun thing I did do over the weekend, though, is I went to see Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Ooh, I haven't seen that yet. Yes, it is so <laughs> good. It's a good ending to the, um, I guess, franchise or yeah, that little series, to the Marvel trilogy. series. Did, did yeah, you trilogy. try? Did you yes, cry? I think lot. I'm going to bring my Kleenex when yeah. I go. <laughs> Small disclaimer, there are some scenes that involve like animal mistreatment. Yeah. And so especially for uh, all of us who have worked in like, you know, the field of uh, animal laboratory science, it can be a little hard to, you know, watch things like that. But it definitely like it wasn't like they just put it in there. It was like, oh, yeah, watch all these like animals being abused. But there was like a point to it. And it really added to the character development. Was it? Yeah, have you seen the the second Avatar movie? Yes, I did not see that. What, I don't was know why. it better or was not better? But like, was it as difficult to watch as that whole like wailing scene in that movie? Yeah, basically like that. That was 
hard that to sounds watch. Brutal. Yeah. It was because it was, that movie's like a million hours long. So that sequence must have been two hours. And it just, it was brutal. It was just, it was rough to watch. And it was like, yeah, we get it, James Cameron. You hate whaling. Like, we, I get it. Yeah. I get, you really hate it a lot. So, but yeah. Um, as for uh, Chris, you want to, is there anything new with you? We miss you in the zebrafish world, by the way. Yes. <laughs> well, I miss you guys. Oh, thanks. I do. <laughs> so it's nice to be here with you. Uh, not, and what's new with me? You know, so I guess for for those of uh, those listeners that don't know, I did. I no longer work at Children's at Boston Children's, where I spent most of my time in the in the zebrafish world. And about a year and a half ago, I left uh, to go work for a company called Smart Labs, which is essentially an incubator that provides research infrastructure, both physical and personnel for biotech uh, and pharma. So effectively, it's an extension of what I was doing before, but it's more general. Mm. Um, and I left not, I didn't leave the fish. I left the fish. <laughs> well, I did leave the fish on a day to day basis, but I left it not because I don't love it, but because I want to do more with fish. And I felt like I needed to grow and branch mm -hmm. out. And build mm -hmm. new and build and flex new muscles, because um, sure. I can't do that in real life anymore. So I have to do it. You know, <laughs> sure. But at any rate, it's it's been a good experience, and I still get to do fish stuff. Like obviously, when you invite me to do things like this, I jump at the chance. But uh, got do a little bit of consulting, some writing projects. Of course, I still teach at the Mount Desert Island uh, Fish Health course in Maine. Mm -hmm. uh, this will be like, I don't even know what year it is. I think it's year 12 for me, but it's, that's literally the, my favorite thing that I do professionally. Mm -hmm. So, nice. um, so yeah, so I'm still, still working on the fish, trying to, trying to learn and grow just like all of us. Nice. We got to get, we got to get to that level where we can, uh, I want to teach at one of those things. We got to, we got to keep going <laughs> strong know. guys. Uh, I used to teach at like a vet tech college and I missed that a lot. Like I, I loved teaching. I taught exotic uh, animal nursing mm. and medicine. Loved mm. it. Loved it. I, that was the best. <laughs> as far as for me, I think the only thing new is, uh, and since this podcast comes out like weeks from now, I can talk about it and it's not like a secret. My husband and I are going to Alaska for like a week. Mm. We're doing, we're doing like a cruise. So I'm in the process of trying to like pack and we've done all kinds of like tropical vacations, but packing for a trip to Alaska is way more complicated. You need to bring like a lot more stuff with you. Yeah. I'm bringing all my camera gear and like, you know, we got spotting scopes and all that kind of stuff. So it's just trying to figure out like how much stuff to bring and not like overpack, but it's going to be like, we're, we're doing this cruise, but it's like a nerd cruise and not like a regular, like fancy cruise where the, you know, the events are like lectures from like scientists and stuff like that instead of like, what? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. yeah. This so, is like, not carnival. Uh, no, never again. <laughs> never again. No, this, this podcast is, uh, is brought to you by Carnival. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. So, like, they they have like park rangers and stuff on board. So oh, wow. it's just going to be a bunch of nerding out about like animals <laughs> and like everyone running to one side of the boat when they see an orca or something. You know, everyone leaving their dinner behind because it's like uh, there's a humpback whale or something. <laughs> so, so yeah. So we're leaving in a couple in a week just over a week so um so we're just still trying to pack and like decide what to bring and what not to bring and uh 
it's stressful because it's like, I don't know what the weather's going to be like there. It's kind of unpredictable. Wow. I think it'll be fun. I hope it'll be fun anyway. You could... <laughs> or if not rip me, I'm going to get eaten by an orca or something. <laughs> oh no, we'll Have hold you... a memorial service for you. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> the, the scariest mammal alive, the orca is terrifying. <laughs> Have you Have you been there before? Never. Uh, I think my husband had been at some point when he was a lot younger, but no, we've never, I've never been. So we'll see, we'll see what it's like. So uh, I would say I'm going to go eat a whole bunch of crab, but I'm pretty sure it's almost extinct. So there probably isn't any to eat anymore. Mm. So <laughs> Thanks, Noah. Thanks for that. <laughs> uh, all right. So maybe let's get into a bit of like the background and history of facility management. Chris, you probably know a little bit more about this than than any of us do. I think a lot of us came in kind of later when things have been a little bit different. But as far as, you know, kind of earlier days with zebrafish facilities, how were they managed before? Like, what did things look like kind of back before? Back in the day? Back in the day. <laughs> I back in your say, day. I didn't want to say the genesis. We're piling out, <laughs> now oh. around. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. okay. You know, I've, I've come, to, <laughs> come to accept my status as an old man. So I came into this in 1999. So... Raise your hand if Uh-oh. you weren't if you weren't born yet. No, I think we were all born. We're, yeah, uh, old enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, that's good. We talked about like how looking we're at me. <laughs> I, I am. I'm looking specifically at Amber, but <laughs> I'm not I was, that young. <laughs> yeah, I was still in high school in 1999. That was a good year. <laughs> I was in middle school. Jeez, and... Louise. Okay. Yeah, I'm the old one of this group. Look how old you've become. <clears throat> well, I was. Uh, <laughs> I was in my late 20s. I used to be with it, but then they changed what it was. Now what I'm with isn't it, and what's it seems weird and scary to me. It'll happen to you. And um, I started, it's a long story that I won't go into, but I moved from, I had been living in Arizona, and I'd gone to Arizona State to study wildlife ecology, essentially. And uh, I promised my wife that when I was finished, we would move back here because we're both from the Northeast. And so I did. And all of my job prospects in ecology and wildlife biology immediately vanished Mm. with no connections. So I took a job. uh, I I was just desperate to find a job that would keep me somewhat within what I thought was the sector that I was interested in. So I took a job as a fish facility technician in a lab at Harvard in late 1999. Mm. In the lab, uh, the PI was John Dowling, who was a very famous guy that used the zebrafish uh, to study vision and specifically the development of the retina. So he was an early adopter of the zebrafish model system. And uh, so I started then. And that was, so if you if you look at that in, in relationship to where it was in the history of the zebrafish as a biomedical model, if you think of George Streisinger, I, I mean, I listened to episode one, so I listened to your regaling history of the zebrafish <laughs> model. Um, uh, in the in the tale of George Streisinger and, and his uh, my best. <laughs> and, his, and his merry gang there at the University of Oregon in the in the late sixties. Oh, merry man! Early seventies, mid seventies. That's often thought of as the time uh, at which zebrafish was brought into the mainstream, if you will, and made into a, a genetic model organism at scale. No pun intended. 
Um, Josh will point out every pun. Yes, I will absolutely. point out every pun. Yeah, I got I got beat you I the punch it. there. Anyway, <laughs> so that was that was late seventies. They set up the infrastructure right. So you know, the Strasburg's vision was to was to find a model or create a model organism that they could do large scale genetic screens in a vertebrate, uh, but with the the sort of ease of manipulation that you would find in in a fly or a worm, right? And so the zebrafish fit the bill, and they set that infrastructure up. And the proof of principle screens, the two big screens, were done sort of simultaneously in the 80s, uh, throughout the sort of mid to late 80s in Germany and in Boston, and they're referred to as the big screens. And those were hmm. published with great fanfare and development, uh, journal development, uh, I think in the early 90s, mid 90s, and then everything sort of took off from there. So those two big screens spawned everything. Again, another pun <laughs> for you. You're getting them to them too fast before I can point yeah, them out. I know. Very good. <laughs> My mind is so quick. <laughs> uh, so John Dowling uh, was an early adopter. So he sort of got on that first wave of screens. So he, he saw the, these this these incredible papers that were published by those two groups and decided that he would adopt the zebrafish as a model system. He had done earlier work uh, in goldfish uh, because they've got great big eyes. Mm. Uh, but they didn't have the genetic tractability of the zebrafish. And so he was an early adopter, an early believer. And I came into it as he was sort of launching his genetic screen. So that's what they were doing. They were they were doing mutagenesis screens uh, when I got there in October of 99. And, and that's when I started. And it was very much a typical situation where it was in an old building uh, on the Harvard campus in the basement. And it was just a couple of rooms that were retrofitted with a hodgepodge of like glass tanks on wooden shelves. And then we started making systems that were basically salad trays on Metro racks. <laughs> uh, and we had a couple of fish rooms in cold rooms that we kept hot. Mm, so mm -hmm. walk in, walk in cold rooms. So that's what I came into. And I think that was pretty standard, right? I think it was, there were a, a few adopters in the, in the United States and in Europe, mostly maybe a little bit in Asia that had sort of jumped on that train. And it was very much sort of, you built your own infrastructure and you, you hired postdocs and graduate and graduate students to do the work and, and a couple of fish schleps to feed the fish. And, <laughs> read the fish and that's what you did so that's what it looked like in the beginning and i think that was pretty representative i think what we what we had was probably pretty similar to what oregon had mm. and to some extent what tubingen had in germany so that was those were the early days there weren't that many of them and that's when i started so i was pretty early and so basically like pis were kind of just doing their own thing right they were just out doing their own thing, kind of like left to their own devices. There wasn't really any kind of oversight from any sort of like, not regulatory there, bodies, there, but like the veterinary bodies. There was oversight, but it was extremely distant. Yeah. So uh, the best analogy that I can make is that probably if you went somewhere today, and even now it's pro it probably isn't even a good comparison, but let's say you went somewhere today where someone had just picked a species out of the out of the the wild and decided to develop it 
study some aspect of it in, in, in the lab. That would be under the purview of the of the animal program at whatever institution it would be, but it would be pretty distant. There'd be very minimal involvement on the part of the animal care staff, on the part of, on the part of the regulatory adherence bodies within the institution, vets, so on and so forth. That's what it was like. So we did have IACUC. We did have IACUC inspections, but it was, they knew nothing. They would just defer to you, right? Is that the idea? Kind of like when you get a new species in? At, at Harvard, when we were there, it was it was completely driven by us. We would okay. clean it up a little bit, but just they had very, very minimal involvement and minimal stay in anything that we were doing. Um, and again, this is a zebrafish was on the radar because it needed to be because it was an animal that was being used in the laboratory. So there was, of course, some basic responsibilities and, uh, that everybody that was using them had and the institution had. But beyond that, it was pretty much the Wild West. We did whatever we wanted, essentially. And so we ran things how we wanted to and completely in sort of in correlation with his research program. Right. So it was all about the research and the animal care was really wasn't that was secondary. It just was part of the research. It was very different than it is now. Very different. Um, I found it intellectually isolating, to be frank, because I was really one of the only people, if not the only person in that whole outfit that actually cared about the fish. Not that they didn't care, but they didn't look at the fish. They looked at the fish. These are people. (laughs) Yeah, they were brilliant, brilliant people that were studying and working with fish every single day, but they didn't know anything about fish. They didn't really care. They just viewed them as a tool. And I yep. was really the only one that was looking at them as, hey, what? why are we doing this? What, what's going on with this animal? What is this animal doing and why? Why are we growing them in these containers? Why are we breeding them like this? You know, I, I had gotten into this when you know, they had a, a husbandry system that was set up. It was largely what you read in the zebrafish book is what we were doing. Right. Uh, with a couple of twists. But I was the only one who really looked at it that way. So it was just a very different uh, and very, in some ways, there were lots of differences. One of the differences was that no one in their right mind stayed in the husbandry side. No one stayed as a fish tech. It was a pass-through job. Hmm. which is still a problem to some extent, but it was really a pass-through job there. It was like you were there to feed the fish and get to your next your next gig. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just the way it was. I don't know if that answers your question or not. Yeah, it, yeah. Ab- it absolutely does. So my question was about, you know, you've kind of alluded to like what can be like issues with, situ- with a, a situation like this or a setup like this. And I'd like to at some point we'll talk, uh, each of us will talk about our own kind of experience with like zebrafish facility management. But um, what were kind of, you know, the other issues that you noticed when you were, you know, kind of just doing your own thing and the labs were kind of just each lab kind of had their own little janky setup? <clears throat> well, there were a number of, of things that were happening. And the first thing I'll say is that in the beginning, I didn't know any other zebrafish labs. Mm. So I spent the first five years of my career in this, which, by the way, I never intended to stay. I, as soon as I got there, I was like, <laughs> I, got, I, got, I got to get the hell out of this joint. Uh, this is not for me. Um, but I didn't see everything that I, I, that I eventually did see ultimately led me to stay. But one of the things was, is that we were completely isolated. So I, so I was in Boston, there were facilities in Boston, there were other labs in Boston. 
So John had his lab. Lenzon was establishing his lab at Children's across the river. In like we were, in, I was on the main campus of Harvard and Cambridge, and across the river is Boston. For those of you that are not familiar with the Boston Cambridge landscape, they're not the mm-hmm. same thing. But Len was staring at the day. Well, Len was starting up his lab at the same time across the river. Uh, and Mark Fishman had his, and Wolfgang Drever had their operation over at Mass General. Um, so there were a number, and then, and then Nancy Hopkins had her lab at MIT. So these were all the very early zebrafish gurus or adopters in Boston, but there was zero crosstalk wow. within the facility. So the researchers did uh, mm-hmm. crosstalk, but there was no, I never, so first five years, I never set foot in another zebrafish facility in Boston. Wow. So it was completely isolating. So the intellectual, that's intellectual isolation too, right? So just think about this right now. Like the three of you get to chat once a week here about this kind of stuff. And then whenever else you want to, and there's, of course, we're all part of a much larger community today where of people mm-hmm. that think like us and, and have very similar interests and we work in the same sector. It's like a large international community. It's a lot of fun. That is very stimulating. And that's also how, how ideas uh, sort of germinate and, and grow. That didn't happen. So it was completely isolated uh, and isolating. Uh, and so there was also very little like intellectual exchange. So it was all driven uh, in the beginning by just me asking the question, why are we so looking at it as somebody who was trained as an ecologist and as a fish biologist, I was interested in what the, in what the fish were doing. I always felt like there was stuff I could learn. Uh, and I was just interested. I didn't like working in the lab and I didn't like the job and I didn't like the sector at all. But I like the fish. And so I often wondered, okay, why is it that we are growing them like this? Why are we feeding them this? Why are we doing all of these things? So all these why questions, like a like a three year old, why, why, why? That was that was me. And so, uh, but no one else was asking those questions. So people were just so when I asked those questions, people would base it. The answer was always, I don't know, because it's the way we always did it. <laughs> yep, yep. Yay, <laughs> no innovation. <laughs> right. And so that you know drove me crazy, but I also, you know, John Dowling was an incre- is an incredible person, was an incredible mentor, and he was extremely flexible and uh, easygoing, and he was like if you're interested in understanding more about this fish, as long as you can spin back that data into what we're doing and make it better, knock yourself out, buddy. Mm. That was basically <laughs> his attitude, and that's what I did. So I started to, when I asked those questions, I I looked for actual answers, and um, and that sort of ultimately is what kept me in it because I found that was a whole lot of things we didn't know anything about, and that the stuff that we didn't know about was what we could use to really drive the growth of the model and make it easier and better and more efficient with respect to doing research with it, but also better for the animal. Right. That was a big part of it, too. So um, in the beginning, that that wasn't there. But those were sort of the the types of sort of things that were happening. It was research driven. There wasn't a lot of emphasis on improving things and and, and applying the biology uh, to developing new methods. But we at least in John's lab, I had the flexibility to start doing that kind of stuff. Um, And that's how. The first strides were made uh, in the field, and, and ultimately, it's part of how ZHA came to be. 
So just to be clear, um, so you're saying like, while sort of concurrently, while the researchers were doing their research, which, which is largely, you know, let's, let's say it's biomedical, right? Like it's largely, it's like learning about you're investigating diseases or therapies for humans and stuff like that. And using the zebrafish as a tool, you as a technician started to be able to do some experiments that were right. focused on fish biology and stuff like that, right? Like sort of like... Right, right. So the, one of the first things that happened was that when I got there, we were doing genetic screens. And so when you do genetic screens, uh, these, these mutagenesis screens, essentially what you do is you you expose the male fish to a chemical which induces point mutations in, in every single sperm cell uh, mm-hmm. that they in their body. And then you basically recover those mutations by serially inbreeding uh, them. So mm-hmm. you cross them against females and then you cross their progeny with each other. And then you recover these essentially recessive mutations. And then you work your way back from that phenotype to the gene. And that's the way it was done then. But that requires you to have everything depends on breeding, everything. Mm-hmm. And so what was happening when I got there is they were having these sex ratio, these skewed sex ratios in the lab. So I got the Johns and they would they'd have thousands the hundreds of families, and they would be heavily female or male biased, and nobody understood why. Mm-hmm. But when you have that kind of sex bias in an experimental system that relies on breeding, you're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> yeah. And so I was really interested in it and why that was happening. And John was like, if you can figure out why, you're going to help us. And you know, if, that, if that's what keeps you around here, if that's what keeps you going, then, then I'm happy to support that. And I'm also happy to fund small scale experiments if you can help us figure that out. And eventually what I did was parlay that into my graduate uh, thesis. Mm, nice. uh, and I did figure out some things, not, not a lot, because if, as you probably know, the sex determination and differentiation in fish in general, but certainly in zebrafish is, is a holy mess. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, did a, I did help elucidate a few things, but that sort of dynamic, which was understanding the biology and then using the data to help improve the efficiency of the work that w- that was being done, the research that was being done. So linking some aspect of the biology to the practical aspect of using that animal as a model in the laboratory, that was the that was the relationship that John uh, was willing to accommodate and support. And that's what kept me around because that was interesting. And then I expanded it to all sorts of things like breeding and feeding and larviculture, all of these things, which I, I, as you well know, still uh, require a lot of development and work. We've come a long way, but uh, the methods that we were using back then, just look at the zebrafish book now, which is still Mm -hmm. out there. Look at how it's elegant uh, and simple, but it's really primitive. There's so much that is not really understood. Those those methodologies were basically developed and co-opted for other warm water hobby fish, right? Uh, yeah. And so you've got to really, if you're going to, if you're going to try to do more and aggressive, more aggressive and more complex things with a model organism, you have to know a lot more about the actual biology of the animal and then apply that to what's going on, which now we, we know that obviously that's sort of an elementary thing, but it wasn't happening before it was, all, everyone sort of just assumed that was not, that was already figured out and it really wasn't. Chris, where did the, where did the progenitor fish come from for that lab? <laughs> Were they pet trade fish or like, where did they come from? They came from other labs. So they, okay. 
They came from Oregon. Okay. So actually, Marcus Krim and I uh, wrote a review paper on genetic lines and zebrafish a couple of years back. Yep. And we traced the origin of the AB line that we had at Children's back to that because I brought ABs with me mm-hmm. uh, when I moved over from from John's lab uh, effectively to the to the medical school and to Children's. Um, so we traced the history. So I went back and talked to a whole bunch of people, and we determined that they came from one of the earlier generations at Oregon. So they they were they were an offshoot of the original AB. A plus oh, wow. B yeah, yeah. Uh, line. So those are ABs, but we also had WIC. Oh my God, I forgot about WICs. Oh, yeah. just now. We had WIC. We had, <laughs> we had three of They were, uh, I don't believe we had Tubigan when I was there, maybe not a, originally. So we were largely working with AB and WIC. And then we had some, some, uh, SGDs, but a few very early. There wasn't there wasn't much, and we did not get them from pet stores. We did have some fish from from a farm in Florida, mm-hmm. Equil Equil, uh, that were not really brought into that lab specifically uh, for that lab. Uh, they were brought in for a course, a summer course at the MBL, the Marine Biological Lab in Woods Hole, and they were prodigious breeders. Mm-hmm. And so we had uh, taken some of them. So we had Equal, we had AB, uh, and we had Wick, but they were not. We did not go to the pet store. We 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 sort of were inbreeding right from the start back then. Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to ask everybody here um, what their experiences are with uh, zebrafish management's opera, like uh, the ways that the your facilities that you've worked in were managed. So. Amber and Josh, have either of you guys worked in a facility where it was run by the PIs or run by like a kind of a department that was involving the PIs? Or have you guys only worked in places where it was run by the animal care department or some branch thereof? So when I first got into um, laboratory animal science, so my first job was actually a work study and it was at the University of Nebraska Omaha with um, Dr. Ryan Wong. And so he studies um, behavior in zebrafish, um, Mm -hmm. so stress coping mechanisms. But he had two rooms and one in the other room, it was just like your standard, like standalone system where it was recirculating. But then for the breeding, it was static tanks and flow through tanks. Mm. And so I actually had to perform like I think it was every day or every other day, like 10% water exchanges, which was like a lot of work because there were like 20 plus tanks. (laughs) And then for the breeding, we just had one of those like big, almost like black, like tubs, like, like the kiddie pools. So we literally Mm -hmm. had like a a stock tank. Yep. And we put some rocks and plants in it. And then we would just dump the embryos in there and we would just oh. wait for them to hatch. And it was actually a really good way of doing it. Like, I bet they loved it. I bet yeah, they I bet. loved it. Yeah, they <laughs> had all great. that space. And so it was just, Yeah, <laughs> it was so great when I got to feed them because they would all just kind of like swim over. And so were you doing like a lot of the labor yourself? Was that kind of like one of the challenges was that it was just a heck of a lot of work to try to be on top of all of that? Yeah, I was the only husbandry tech for that lab. Everybody else was either a graduate student or they were also like myself doing work study, but were more focused on doing experiments. And we didn't really, there was, I mean, it might be different today, but there was no centralized department when I was there. Everything was P 
PI run, or as we call them now, satellite facilities. Mm -hmm. Right, right. How about you, Josh? Um, so for me, I think for the most part, I my whole career was with institutes where we had like animal care staff that did all the stuff um, or like all the care for the animals. And we even depending on what uh, institute, you know, some of them we were doing a lot more of the, you know, the breeding. We were even injecting constructs. We were screening. We were doing all that stuff. And we didn't even have the researchers coming into the room. Um, but yeah, like like. Uh, Amber said it is what what we see now. Sometimes we'll see like satellite facilities. Like there are a few that I sort of oversee that are satellites. They kind of do their own thing, not zebrafish, um, but they do kind of have their own their own husbandry. And and you know I'll just kind of go in there and be like, okay, maybe you should change a few of these things. Uh, but largely, I'm not. You know, we're not doing anything in those rooms themselves. And are those more novel species, like less less common things? Or yeah, it's okay. and it's kind of like what Chris was saying, it's just like, uh, you know, cause everything's kind of like with a new species now, it's just scaled back in time now. Right. Like beta splendens, it's a fish that's not so you it's, it's very common in the hobby, but it's not really used in, in research much. So, uh, that, that facility that we have, or those two facilities that are beta facilities are actually run by us. Um, but initially it was run by the lab. Right. And so like, as we sort of like get caught up to speed with everything then we would take it over. I mean, I think the reason why, like, I think the reason why these paradigms exist, especially with new stuff, is because as you start with a new species, I feel like you can kind of equate it to like uh, like the olden times when it's like, you know, we're all growing corn. We all each have our own farms. And then we realize like you're better at making shoes and my soil's better. So like I can farm and then you make shoes and then we just trade, you know, and like that's the thing. It's like researchers, you're really good at doing your science. I've been working with fish a long time. So let me take care of that part and you do the science part. And like, it's a better overall because you're specializing. Right. So yeah. Right. For sure. Thoughts. <laughs> yeah. And it's important to be able to do that kind of stuff, but also without like siloing yourself into like specific like roles and not like communicating about stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but I think like, even like, all of us as members of ZHA, like we have folks that come to us sometimes. And I actually was answering somebody on like Reddit the other day on one of the lab animal like groups on Reddit where someone came in saying like, my lab runs our own zebrafish facility. Like I have to do all the husbandry, but like mm -hmm. I'm trying to do my own science and I can't because yeah. I have to do all the husbandry. And <laughs> You know, as someone whose background is in like animal health, it always makes me nervous when I see people posting about that because it's like, you know, what's getting missed? You know, who has the time to do things when, you know, you can't blame someone for wanting to have to dedicate like their time in academia to do the science that they want to do. Right. Like mm -hmm. it's tough to expect them to be able to do, you know water chemistry and all that kind of stuff. It's, right. it's a challenge. So that always makes me nervous, but I think like Josh, you've probably seen this too. And Amber as well, like folks will come to Danny Zoom Fridays and mm -hmm. say like, I, I am a scientist <laughs> and I don't want to do husbandry. Please help me. Like, how do I hire people? You know? So I think, I don't know. I don't know if you guys agree. I feel like this kind of way of doing things where like, especially when you're talking about not really tiny facilities, and when we're talking about zebrafish specifically, I think we're seeing a shift to fewer and fewer PI run operations and more and more where, you know, they're kind of under the umbrella of the animal care department. Would you guys agree that that's becoming more prevalent than it was? Absolutely. And I actually have a good um, example of that. So the lab that I just recently left. And so that was a satellite facility or PI run. 
And again, I was the only husbandry tech that was taking care of the breeding. I was feeding the fish and I was also, you know, managing the facility and the lab. And I think the, you know, the benefit of having your own autonomy, right? Because that's the thing here is like, this is why PIs want to have a PI run lab or facility is because they want to control everything. They don't really Mm -hmm. want IOCook or anybody else to get involved because they think they understand the model organism, right? But when you know, push comes shove, it's like you can't handle, you know, all the responsibilities that comes with that facility. And so when things break, you have to pay for that. You have to fix Mm -hmm. that yourself. Um, Or if something happens to the fish, there's like an outbreak or something like that. You have to deal with that. And that's why having a centralized department, there's so much, um, so many benefits to it, to where you have, you know, vets on call, 24 hours, or you have husbandry staff basically on call 24 hours. And so I think I had gotten to the point with that lab where I was able to set them up with CCM, uh, which is our centralized department. And so that everything was, you know, they were well taken care of because they got to the point where they couldn't focus on their research anymore. Mm. And it was kind of getting in the way of things. Right. What are your thoughts on that, Chris? <clears throat> I think, um, I think it's, True. I think it's evolving. I think there are a number of factors that are driving this. Right. I think that in the beginning, uh, it was much more analogous to some of these special, what we think of as specialty species. Right. So the zebrafish was that mm-hmm. in a way. It was sort of a niche model. There were responsibilities that that everyone had to adhere to or meet in order to work with those animals in, in a research setting. Um, but the, the scrutiny wasn't high. Mm. And frankly, what we were doing was complicated and complex, but it wasn't, it was limited, but it was successful, right? And that success, as, as we all know, was built on, built uh, and paved the way for, for, for further successes that accelerated, that helped accelerate the growth of this, of this particular species, the zebrafish, in such a way that now, it is a primary lab animal species. It's being used for in every way, just like mice or rats. I mean, it, it is a, just think about every possible experimental scenario that you can think of uh, where a model organism would be used. And, and you, could, you could find an example of a zebrafish being used in that way. Mm-hmm. And that complexity of, of the usage um, plus the growth of it has necessitated that you can't the scrutiny is high Mm -hmm. the regulatory oversight is 10x maybe 20x (laughs) remember like when's the last update of the guide the latest update to the guide for the care and use of laboratory animals which is the primary regulatory not really a regulatory document but it's the document that the regulatory the regulators use in the united Mm -hmm. states and elsewhere um I think it's 2011 is the most recent update, or is it 13? Yeah, that sounds about right. So prior to that, if you did a word search for fish in the document edition prior to that, there were like one or two hits. But that was what the regulatory agencies um, and accrediting, accrediting institutions were using to guide how we were overseeing these kinds of facilities. So the, it was basically you told them what you wanted 
what they you wanted them to to hear. And so now it's not like that anymore, right? So just the 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 most recent edition has got so much more information uh, about fish and just and I'm assuming I don't really know where they are in the in the most recent uh edition of that but i'm sure it's being worked on now and there are it has other... to be because this yeah, yeah. is 2011 which is like a crazy <laughs> amount of years ago yeah and it's uh, only it, like a couple of paragraphs or something like that when i went through it it's it's still a lot more and a lot mm-hmm. more specific than it was prior to that and now we have other other similar documents in other in other countries that are much more recent and far more yeah, CCAC has a really good zebrafish document. Right, so. and then I think I forget what the document is in the uh, in the UK and in Europe uh, that's adopted. But the the regulatory oversight and the pressure and the scrutiny is so much higher. That and that has to do with the scale of it and the scale of what we're trying to do with the animal, and that's also driven the way that even some specialties fish are actually looked at now from a from a management perspective, it's not as easy to stay under the radar, even if you're working with some quote unquote obscure model, because the zebrafish has brought fish mm. and aquatic models into the light. Um, and it's still, there's still a lot of dark crevices where, uh, <laughs> you know, stuff can happen. Uh, sure. <laughs> but it's, it's just a different world. And I think to, to Amber's point, it's just increasingly difficult for an individual lab to meet all of those responsibilities that are now expected, not only from regulatory agencies, but by accrediting uh, institutes like the like ALAC, for instance, mm-hmm. which is really a driver as well. So it's just a, it's a completely different world, and that is driving it uh, to a different management paradigm. It doesn't mean that. People are letting go of responsibility and oversight easily because they're not. Nope. Uh, because a lot of it is money, you know, it's mm-hmm. driven by finances. Um, but it's becoming increasingly difficult to do it sort of the old way. That doesn't mean a satellite facility can't work. A lot of people yeah. like hear me talk about this. You know, I gave, I gave a talk at a ZHA thing not that long ago and uh, or a couple talks around this. And I think that people misunderstand me when I say the satellite facility paradigm is 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 probably uh, going away, but I don't think it doesn't work. I think it can work, but you just have to make sure. It doesn't really matter who does the work, but that work has to be done, and yeah. it has to be done to a, a specific standard. It's just increasingly unrealistic to think that it can be done in, in the context of an individual lab uh, without the support of other other people within the institution. The other thing that's happening is that lab animal knows a lot more about aquatic models, which Mm -hmm. was always a problem. So when Mm -hmm. I started, there was a very harsh dividing line where we didn't want the mice people anywhere near the jets and the sharks. (laughs) It was totally, we would square off. uh, Dance battles. um, Yeah. We would dance, we would dance fight uh, and things like that. But there was there was just this deep mistrust, and that mistrust was 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 driven by the fact that there was a the regulatory responsibility for the institution to have oversight, 
that is usually in the purview of the of the lab animal group. But the lab animal groups knew nothing about the fish. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so they were coming at it from a completely sort of rodent-centric viewpoint, and that caused a lot of problems. And there were some mm. catastrophic failures mm-hmm. uh, of lab animal programs trying to run fish facilities, and it just crashed and burned because the yep. education wasn't there. Mm-hmm. But that's changed too. In my experience, when... And this is the same with like hobbyist fish folks where they're like, we know more than the veterinarians, you know, and like with because I come from lab animal, like I worked with rodents for years before I worked with fish. Like my role in the fish facility came from doing a seven week summer contract running the fish facility. And then I stayed there. So but I had done fish before, like I was a fish nerd. But in my in my experience, it was like. If you make the slightest mistake as someone who is perceived to be a rodent person or someone from the lab animal department, that's it. You're done. Get out. Like, that's it. No more. And so I think, I don't know. I hate this whole, like, us versus them situation that I was around for a really long time. Like, legitimately, when I left the animal care department at, like, an old job, this is several jobs ago, to go work for a lab doing, uh, I was doing, like, pet CT scanning. Uh, on rodents i the director of that animal care department told me you're going to the dark side and it was like really this is not this is not how we should be thinking of these things they're not bad we're not bad like we're just trying to achieve a common goal here and like get out of your own butts about this for real and i don't know so i think like chris said like the vets now like as part of uh, learning to be a lab animal veterinarian and getting your uh, board or whatever for that, uh, zebrafish are considered a primary species as well. So that's good. I think that the lab animal technician training, speaking as a lab animal technician, they still have a long way to go to try and get these folks up to training to where we would like them to be, I think. But I think the challenge as well is you have a lot of folks that work in lab animal technician areas that are interested in mammals and not interested in the weird animals that we work with. So it's one thing to get them trained. It's another thing to get them interested in wanting to work with those species. Do not force rodent technicians to do fish stuff. They will hate it and they won't do a great job. Some people are very keen on learning all kinds of stuff and those people are great, but you know, don't make us fish folks go work with the rodents and like cross training is fine. It's all good to like have knowledge, but the number of times that I got pulled away from the fish facility where I was the only person in our group that had knowledge and expertise on the life support systems and everything about the fish facility to go do a mouse job that 10 other people in the department could do that's rough and i hated every minute of it you know so (laughs) it's not fun no offense rodent folks but i don't want to do that job anymore that's never again (laughs) Mm -hmm. so josh i don't know if you have any experience with like kind of satellite facilities becoming more under the umbrella of like animal facilities or anything like that yeah we've done that i mean we we have done that on on multiple occasions where we almost like acquired them and i think it just kind of like worked out better for everyone um just because it helped to standardize things a little bit more i mean nowadays i think it's just because institutes have aquatic specialists or someone along that vein a lot more times it's a little easier to have that transition happen as opposed to a long time ago when you just be like well we're going to take over and we're going to have mouse people do it 
or whatever. Like that's a little tricky. Yeah. Um, but nowadays, if you can lean on someone with expertise and knowledge of systems, it helps a lot. Um, so that's, you know, obviously my role uh, at Columbia, um, but it's, it's the case for plenty of people like sure. us, I guess, all, all around the nation, around the world. Like, so yeah, I think it hasn't really been too much of an issue. Uh, I also would say that like, there does seem to be, and this is not the case with plenty of labs, but there is a little bit of a conflict of interest sometimes, right? If you're, if you have a satellite facility, because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, your main job is to get your experiments running smoothly and eventually get published, get funding. Like we know that whole paradigm. Uh, and that can sometimes be, um, you know, problematic for fish health or facility health or whatever, because you're focusing on that. And and you kind of alluded to this before. And so when you have technicians who are working for animal care or from a different department, but are doing that work, they are there specifically to make sure those animals are doing well, they're healthy and the systems are and facilities are running smoothly. And so there's no conflict of interest for us because we're just trying to make sure that everything is good good with the animals and the researchers can do their research. So that's, that's my spiel. (laughs) And believe it or not, uh, contrary to what some folks think, we're not trying to sabotage the work that people are doing. We're really not. Oh no, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And animals come first. Yeah, like yeah. if you go through all of the training and everything, it's just mm-hmm. like animals are always first. So if an animal is in distress or is dying, like they're going to be, you know, the first ones that kind of, you know, get the care that they need and everything versus like the research, uh, which may be put on hold for whatever reason. And I think a yeah. lot of times people forget that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I think we could probably do a whole separate episode on like how you go about, you know, transitioning a satellite or PI run facility to something that's mm. under the umbrella. Like it's, it's complicated. Like I, I, <laughs> it my, is. my experience, like F1, when I first yeah. came in was, um, <sighs> so I came into this fish facility that I was working for, at for the summer. And I, you know, even though this was technically under the observation of the animal care department, the guy that had been running it for like 40 years was just kind of like, they left him do his own thing and it was fine as fine as it could be considering like the infrastructure that we had and everything. But I came in with like my like rodent mindset of like, this is how we should do things. And this is how we do things in the animal care department came in there, started looking after stuff. And I was kind of like, the hell is everybody doing here? Like, what the (laughs) hell is this? So I came in like guns blazing, trying to change things very quickly. Like I was like, this is wrong. This is wrong. We need to change all of these things because we're not. Researchers love change. They love it. Oh yeah. (laughs) I'm kidding. So basically I got like the response I basically got from everyone was like, who's this bitch? Why is she telling us what to do? And it's like, I had fish knowledge. I could work with fish for years as just like a hobbyist, but like I, yeah. So it was just kind of like, who the hell is this person? So I did not make any friends uh, at oh. the start, but you know, I had in the, the back of, like I had kind of like the angel devil thing on my shoulders where I had like the director of the animal care department telling me you need to get these people to do this. And then I had my direct supervisor who had been there for 40 years. That was like, eh, it's fine. Let's just leave this. Like don't, <laughs> don't cause any problems. So that was kind of my first. And so like transitioning to where I am now, I am in a weird situation where the animal care department had been running the zebrafish facility. They had, as Chris alluded to, as you guys alluded to, some catastrophic failures that led Mm. to the loss of a heck of a lot of animals. And they got fired from the animal care department. And so they hired me. (laughs) 
So now I get oh, to be the okay. person that everybody yells at. So the animal care department and the researchers, they all just yell at me. So but you're <laughs> Which hired I, by animal care, right? No, like no. I was hired oh, by the department of uh, oh. pediatrics. So I work for the school of medicine. I do not oh, work for the animal care department. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I Gosh. think it's far less common for that to be a thing that just kind of appears these days. Like this is, this happened in 2019. I don't think it will stay this way forever because like, Mm -hmm. and Chris has talked about this before, there's a lot of like things that I spend time and resources on that like, I'm just duplicating the structure of that the animal care department is doing, you Mm -hmm. know, like the human resource management, managing staffing, training, all that kind of stuff. Like I have to be in charge of all those things. We have 70 racks and there are three of us. And I, you know, even though I'm the manager, I spend a significant amount of my time doing husbandry, like crawling around on the floor, picking up fish, you know, which (laughs) don't get me wrong. I love doing it. Like I love doing that stuff, but I don't know how sustainable it is in the long term because I am doing a lot of things that I, I maybe don't need to do if I was under the umbrella of the animal care department. Mm. But at the same time, I love the fact that we are kind of doing our own thing. Like the animal care department was, I think, pretty happy that they hired me because I have a background in lab animal. So I understand kind of the regulatory framework we're working in. Like I understand all of that. And I understand like you know, we're trying to do what's best for the animals in the context of doing good science. So that's fine. I worry about being under the umbrella of an animal care department again. Like it makes me nervous, you know, having to cross train a bunch of people or having like just people come through that maybe don't have that kind of like fish techs are a little different. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it, but like the rodent folks, they're fine, but maybe they aren't as interested in learning things. So I don't know. It makes me nervous to be micromanaged by a team of animal care department folks. But I I always say that like folks that work in animal care that are in management are maybe a little bit of sociopaths, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) There are people that like don't want, shouldn't work on the floor anymore or no one wants them working on the floor anymore. So they put them in management roles, but they don't know how to manage people. Sometimes, you know, they like animals, but they really don't like people. I, I mean, mean that can, yeah, that's that all of us, of be, I guess. That's sort of that can sort of be true up and down sure, sure. many yeah, yeah. Yeah. occupations because I, yeah. I think we've seen it in a lot of areas. I see it in vet med all the time. Like it's mm-hmm. a huge problem in vet med. But anyway, it's just it, it's complicated, right? So what do you guys think as far as you know, where do we go from here? Like, what does the future hold for? housing zebrafish and managing zebrafish facilities, even something like, you know, our facility is a massive single room that is supporting like 50, 70 people and like 12 to 15 labs at any given time. I don't even know if that's something sustainable. You know, we don't see that in the rodent world so much. We see like small rooms that are insular to labs or a group of labs or something like that, or a a specific type of work, right? So, you know, right now the challenge we have is you've got people doing embryological work that is behavior related related and we house the fish that are get having all kinds of different studies done all in the same space which is maybe not ideal so what do you guys think as far as you know what what does the future hold tricky yeah. right i mean it's uh you know some of it's the way the facilities are designed and built right and oh. there's, a his, there's, a, there's a historical context to all of this right so your point about like these centralized resources being one big room or 
with one or two recirculating systems where that's supporting all kinds of work that's not necessarily always uh, aligned in terms of what the requirements are, uh, the health requirements, uh, that causes all sorts of complications. And there's all sorts of vulnerabilities that are also built into that too, right? Uh, because it's not much redundancy. Mm-hmm. Um, so if something happens, it's the tragedy of the commons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've seen and we've seen sort of uh, multiple examples of that, I'm sure, all of us mm-hmm. uh, over the years. So but the thing is, is it's expensive to build this infrastructure and no one that I know of is building like a new like a like a new world facility. Like every facility you go in pretty much looks the same. Yeah. The, the equipment might look a little different, but it's still the same stuff that was built 20 years ago. It's the same layout. It's still cramming as many tanks as you can get into specific spaces. It's still big recirculating systems. There, there's not a lot of compartmentalization. And there are reasons why you might not want to do that. But the reality is, is that to support a system that is representative or similar in its usage to, to rodents, you've got to, it's got to look more to the extent that it, that it can. It's got to look more like a rodent facility. It's got to be more compartmentalized. I'm not, I'm not necessarily advocating to do this because to do this, you change the entire staffing paradigm. But one would expect in a, in a, in a really, if you thought high in the sky, what a facility, like a zebrafish facility, or even not zebrafish, let's say it's cavefish, whatever, mm-hmm. you would have, you know, you might have a couple of recirculating systems for broodstock but you'd probably have a whole number of pods. And some of this we also learned in COVID too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of uh, separation of, of workflow uh, for other reasons. But you would have a number of pods that you could sort of have a like one rack or two racks that you could set up, run, and then tear down, seed and then tear down uh, to support specific experiments and lines of work that would come in and out. And you wouldn't necessarily... You'd run more these facilities or these pods would run more from experiment to experiment than they would for, you know, dozens of years of generations and generations of fish that most people aren't even using. Like, you know, what do you think about what is in your fish facility right now? What percentage of those animals are actively even used? It's 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 a lot smaller than it really should be. Right. I mean, but part of it's the way that we're we're building them and the way we're staffing them but to build a facility that's modular like that it's expensive yeah. both in infrastructure like the, the actual physical infrastructure but also the management infrastructure try to do that with three if you're crawling around right now christine on your hands and knees looking yeah. for fish during the day <laughs> yeah. and you're the you're the director of that of that operation that's broken they're not paying you whatever they're paying you which probably isn't enough, but let's just let's just assume it's you know a, a reasonable rate. They're not paying you to cl- to crawl around on your hands and knees to pick up fish. They're 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 paying you to manage that resource, that complicated resource. And you're probably not devoting as much of your your time and energy towards those higher level things because you can't because no, the, exactly the bottom line is that you've got to keep the animals happy and swimming. And I did the 100%. same thing. It's one of the reasons I left mm-hmm. because 
I wasn't learning as many things as I needed to be learning if I wanted to continue to grow because all I was doing is slogging fish. Now, that's fine. And just like you guys, I love that. But it was also it was also holding me back. And that and that's just me personally, but it's representative of, of the problem that we have in the system. It's not sustainable. So we're like we're in this really awkward situation and an awkward stage of the growth of the model. And I don't know which way it's going to go, but things if it, you want to grow, you can't have your cake and eat it. Too. I mean, you have to there have to be some sacrifices, hard decisions made for us to grow. And I think a lot of people are not necessarily willing to do that. They want it all. They want the fish to be like like mice without some of the sort of investment, without some of the sacrifices uh, that go along with it. So we're in a difficult situation. That doesn't mean we have to replicate exactly what they do, but we have to take some of that and make it our own. But it's it's tricky. Uh, and it's very complicated. And, it's, and it could be the subject of 10 podcasts. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 100%. We definitely yeah. do need standardization, though, which is what you're saying, because that's what they have or I guess PIs and also like husbandry techs that work with rodents, that's what they have. So they can go and look at SOPs and it's very well laid out and tells you how to feed the fit or not fish, sorry, how to <laughs> feed the rodents, how to take care of the rodents, where they're going to live, all these things that we don't necessarily have at you know our fish facilities or they're very different. I mean, just go to one of our Friday, you know, Daniel Zooms and everybody is doing things differently down to euthanasia, which is kind of alarming, to be honest, because I feel like that should at least be standardized. We should have a way to, you know, humanely euthanize fish, but we don't like because people do it, you know, very differently. And that's why, you know, personally for me, like when you were saying that, you know, that's the reason why you had to leave your previous position. It was like that for me as well. I was like, you know, this is going to take more than just hiring more people you know, to run a facility. This is going to take more than just, you know, getting money to build a different type of facility. It's going to take like, you know, vets getting trained on how to care for fish in a laboratory setting. It's going to take people in Iacook, myself, who know like how these things work, how it is to work with fish and to care for fish and then to use them for research. I mean, it's just going to take change all across the board is what I see in order to get to that standardization. Yeah. hundred percent. And it's going to take a bunch of money. <laughs> yeah. <it is. laughs> a bunch of money that people don't want to pay. So, yeah. you know, so. I mean, that's standardization is, is, I mean, that's, that's the goal, right? Uh, and standardization where it's, where it's necessary and where it's, where it's um, practical uh, and where it's in some state, in some instances, we don't necessarily need standardization, but it's difficult to get there. But I think that one thing that I, I, I've i been thinking a lot about for quite a while now is the first step in that is def definition, right? Like we've got to be defining what we're doing mm -hmm. so that when and where a standardization is, is appropriate, we can, we can move towards that. Uh, and we can develop those uh, those standards, uh, but at minimum we should be able to define the you know what we're doing and why. And I think even in that case, we're not necessarily doing a great job of that. And that was certainly something. It's still something that I that I that I personally uh, have been working on is trying to get to that point where defining 
uh, is is job one, and that's less expensive. Like it's not that hard to do. You've got the information. You just have to figure out how to share it in a in a usable way. You know, you Chat GPT. You know, I just wonder. For instance, <laughs> seriously, I mean, you, you wonder. I've been thinking about this recently. Like, how can AI help us define? what we're doing and share that information in a way that when and where we can, we can standardize certain things for less money and less effort. Like, I feel like mm-hmm. there's some, there's something there. I feel right now, if I was running a, a, a fish facility or a fish program, which I'm not necessarily right now, but if I were, I would be pushing pretty hard, looking pretty hard at whether or not I can harness AI to take all the data that we collect and to summarize it in some usable form that other people could look at. I mean, we were doing a lot of that by hand uh, when I left Children's. Uh, it was a lot of a lot of time, a lot of effort. I, I felt it was worth it. But just to your to your point, it will be tough. It will be expensive. But there are things that we can do now that can help right now that aren't necessarily big money. It just takes, I think, a different way of looking at, uh, admittedly, uh, an overwhelmingly complex challenge. But I, I think that there's some, there's some stuff that we can do now on relatively short money if, we, if we're inventive. For sure. I think <laughs> one of the things that you guys did at Children's was, and I think you're probably referring to this, was you shared your husbandry data. Like right, data, right. And I think a lot of folks, well, we don't do it. We, I don't have the time or resources to be able to compile all that. Right. Right. I log it, but it's just giant piles of paper or like Excel files that are sitting somewhere. Right. Um, And I think, you know, it bothers me when I see people publish papers and they're referring to some like 1978 Westerfield. This is how we (laughs) kept our fish. And it's like, no, it's not. That's not how you please don't put that in your paper. But at the same time, I really can't complain because I don't have anything published that says this is how we kept the fish in this facility. You know, like it's yeah, but it should be. And I'm not saying that you, it's your fault. Uh, it's what you're saying is so true. It's like, you don't have, I, we, I don't think they're doing it now because it was overwhelmingly difficult to do. And I spent an enormous amount of time on just generating those data sets sure. and compiling those data sets. Uh, but I think it's something that should be a priority that somebody, mm-hmm. like whether it's the regulatory agencies, whether it's ALAC, that kind of thing whether it's the funding agencies, I think if there's an impetus for that, I mean, that was the NIH was interested in helping uh, the community develop tools to get at this, this particular issue. And we didn't necessarily as a, as a community approach it the right way. But I think there, there's gotta be something out there from a technological standpoint that we can leverage to address this, the very challenge that you just summarized, which is, I know it's important. I have the data, but it's literally, I cannot prioritize it Yeah, because for lots of different reasons, but mostly because you just don't have the time. But mm-hmm. maybe if there's a tool, I feel like it's got to be there. It's just got to be there. I mean, a tool or a person, like there are data scientists out there, data analysts. And that's why, again, it it's not just having vets or having husbandry techs, even like management. Like we need to have more people involved in these types of things. Like even if they don't come from a laboratory animal science background, like a data science could scientist right. could come in and actually know what to do with that type of data and then give us, you know, right. exactly what we need in order to understand what's going on with the fish. 
Um, but yeah. AI, you know, could be a possibility too, if like the department doesn't have the funds to be able to hire maybe a data scientist or go to outside sources. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point too. It's It doesn't necessarily have to be a fish person to do this work, mm-hmm. to provide this this solution. And I, it makes me think, you know, like one of the things that like when I was uh, at Children's, I basically brought anybody I could who was interested, anybody who was interested in, in, in what we were doing, we brought them in. And the amount of things that I learned by bringing people in that were looking at it from a completely different standpoint, from a completely different perspective, whether they were people that were working in business or retail or even in, I mean, commercial aquaculture was great. Like to give you a quick story, once I brought in these guys that uh, were from some Norwegian company that basically builds these feeding stations for offshore aquaculture farms. And so they automate feeding on these massive scales. And I brought them to the fish facility and I was like, this is what a zebrafish facility looks like. This is our challenge. And this is our robot. And they mm-hmm. laughed. They laughed. <laughs> they laughed because they saw the solutions as simple ones. And we were looking at it as an intractable problem. Uh, and I think that's a sort of a lesson in that I really like what you just said. It doesn't have to be a fish person that can solve this problem. It's just somebody who has the who has the capability of doing something that uh, maybe could be leveraged in a different way. And so it's uh, how do we connect with those people? How do you bring them into the into the discussion? But I think that's a great a great point. One hundred percent. I think for, for me, and this isn't even necessarily a management thing, but just operations wise or life support systems wise, I. I love going to the aquaculture conference because you get to see all the tech that folks are showcasing there. But on a smaller scale, I like going to aquarium shows like pet trade shows and like talking to folks about the life support system, things that they're selling and marketing now. And, you know, first things like trying to modify my standalones, things like that. I love talking to those folks and being like, hey, uh, come and see my facility, please. and Tell me what I can do to like try to improve these things. So, um, Yeah. I think, you know, communication is key to all of this as well. So, yeah. We're still in the infancy. I think that like now that zebrafish are our primary species, so they're taken more seriously by the lap animal and vet communities. Like, I think, you know, more funding will come. There will be things that will change over time. I think we're still kind of at that early stage, even though it's it's not early in in the grand scheme of how long like you've been doing it, Chris, for you or even people before you, but um, you know, I still think like in the long game, when we look a hundred years from now, we are very much in the infancy. So yeah. uh, I, I sort of have hope that we are going to get that stuff figured out eventually. <laughs> I think one thing that needs to go away is this perception that zebrafish are cheap to keep. <laughs> so <laughs> let's just do it because they're cheap to keep. Like, it, yeah, okay. But what kind of science are you doing at that budget? You know, so uh, that's the thing, the thing that bothers me a lot when people are just like, I don't want to spend this money for this thing. And it's like, OK, well, it would save us tens of hours every week. Right. You know, how much does this labor cost? You know, so I do, I do think that, you know, automation in some ways is going to help us. But I do think we have a long way to go for sure. I think we're probably good to wrap it up. I just wanted to say thanks so much to Chris for joining Mm us. Uh, It's been really insightful and I'm always happy to hear your thoughts on, on these topics. I was wondering, Chris, do you have anything you want to promote or talk about anything in particular going on? 
I'd say one of them, and it gets to one of the thing, one of the themes we've hit on tonight um, is the education component of all this. Really, part of improving it on on all levels is about improving education. And you know, I'll plug the main course, the Fish Health course at the MDIBL, which is offered in the end of September. There aren't that many spots. It's a, it's kept small on purpose, but it's a great place to go. And if you like conversations like this, I can do this all day. Yeah, I know, I know. And you like to drink beer, or if you don't like, to, <laughs> if you don't like to drink beer, and you like mountains, and you like the ocean, um, and lobster, and lobster, right? Oh shoot, right? my weakness, and, and swimming in really cold water and bioluminescence and things like that, then that course is for you. Um, so I would I would plug that. It's a great resource. But there are lots of other ones that uh, are out there too, but this is the one that I'm, I'm most affiliated with. So I'll plug that. Um, cool. But I really do want to thank you guys for not only in, inviting me on here, but just for doing this. I think this is a really great and impressive thing that you're doing. It's more than just you guys talking fish amongst yourselves as friends, <laughs> which is cool too. Uh, but you're doing a, a a really good, a really good and a really impressive thing, and I'm, I'm happy that you thought of me uh, to to be part of it. But nice work. Yeah, much appreciated. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> we'll be sure to add a link to the MDIBL to on on the show notes as well. Mm-hmm. Amber, you did that course, right? Yeah, it was absolutely great. So yeah, if you want to get more training on how to, especially for people that are new to managing zebrafish facilities, I think it's just an amazing way to also get that information, not only get that information, but also get involved within the community. And so meeting other people, you know, working on other projects too, that was like the one thing that stood out to me with the one that I went to, I think it was like two or three years ago now. Wow. Um, But just seeing, you know, people from all walks of life and then just having a really good time, a lot of beer, (laughs) but also, yeah, a lot of chats about zebrafish and other aquatic life. We should link to your blog post about your experience in the show notes. That was great. Is that the is that on the website? It's on the ZHA website. Okay. Yeah. So I'll link to it. I just added a couple things into our notes so we know to add that. All right. So shall we close out the show? Thanks for listening to Getting Fishy with it. You can find our website with show notes at gettingfishypod.substack.com. You can find us on Twitter at Getting Fishy Pod and on Instagram at Getting Fishy Pod. You can also find us on Facebook and LinkedIn by searching for getting fishy with it if you want to drop us an email you can send your complaints or questions to gettingfishypod at gmail.com thank you chris so much for being with us thanks guys uh so keep schooling my friends because knowledge is power